MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 42 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, November 3rd. I'm your co-host, Andrew Torres. I'm back from vacation. And guess who's also back from vacation? We're both back from vacation Woo! at the same time. <laughs> I am the co-host, Allison Gill. We have put the band back together again. And before we do anything else... It is time to shout out our amazing patrons who help make this show possible by going to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D, and signing up for as little as a dollar an episode. You will get a shout out on the show and you get the ad-free feed. And this week, we're shouting out House and Tokyo James. Yeah, thank you so much. And since it's November, we also have to recognize our all-time greats, our Hall of Famers, and they are Jessica Oudbeer, Christopher Dalby. Dude, Stephen Mackinnon, why would a lobbyist buy a single movie screen in D.C. when they could buy a cinema in Arizona? That's a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic one. <laughs> Lance Buckley, Crimer, no criming, David in Brooklyn, and Fujixer Stevie V. And I specifically took Fujixer this, this, this month for you, Allison. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I really like that. And also, quote, edit Wikipedia. Yes, you too can contribute to the world's foremost source of free knowledge and maybe get sued by a quack, unquote. Metacon <laughs> 7 enjoys their four minutes and 59 seconds of legally allowed evil. Charles Jones, Chris Waltrip, January 20, baby, woot woot, Patty B, Mitchell, and our all-time great, he who shall never be overthrown, Chris Simpson. Oh, Chris Simpson. <laughs> and now, on to the A block. All right, A block time. Back in May, Biden issued a memorandum directing the reinvigoration and expansion of the federal government's role in expanding access to justice. That presidential memo did two things. First, it called for Merrick Garland, attorney general, to submit a report to the president outlining the Department of Justice's plan to expand its access to justice work. 
Second, it reestablished the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable. That was an Obama-era initiative that was, of course, shelved by the former guy. Late last week, both of the written reports of those initiatives were released to the public. Yeah, and I'm really glad we're covering this because, uh, look, these sorts of inside baseball roundtables are how good or bad ideas get (laughs) cross-pollinated across the entire executive branch, right? Like, your boss... The president brings a bunch of people with real power together and tells them, hey, you should think about X. So with Trump, that was religious freedom, right? Code word for how to marginalize LGBTQ plus people. And so, look, it was no coincidence that when different federal agencies started promulgating new rules, you saw them all using similar language. For example, a really, really telling example of this, and I don't want to say a good example because it was horrible policy, uh, was how how different agencies read anti-discrimination statutes narrowly, right, as permitting them to fire you just because you're trans, for example, right? That does not happen by accident. That happens no, when you yeah. coordinate it. Yeah. Yeah. Or scrubbing climate change from all of your websites or what, yep. how, whatever, however it works. This is the opposite. This is good. Uh, and, well, the opposite in that we don't scrub climate change, the phrase anymore. <laughs> we, you know, it's, use... it's not a Chinese hoax anymore. <laughs> no, no. And, uh, you know, it doesn't happen by accident and neither does undoing it. Right. So let's start with the release of Merrick Garland's report to the president, which outlines a phased strategic plan, strategery to restore and expand the emphasis on access to justice with the Department of Justice. As part of that strategic plan, Attorney General Garland announced uh, that the restoration of a standalone office for access to justice within the DOJ dedicated to improving the federal government's understanding of and capacity to address the most urgent legal needs of communities across America uh, that will initially be funded with $6 million and a staff of at least 10. Yeah, and and that's another thing you can file under the uh, the other guy just didn't care what the law said, right? Because the federal regulations, and specifically 28 CFR 0.33, require that the DOJ staff an office for access to justice. And, and it has to do two basic things. A, promote uniformity of DOJ and government-wide policies and litigation positions relating to equal access to justice. And when we say equal access to justice, we mean across all communities, including marginalized communities, right? And B, examine proposed legislation, proposed rules, other policy proposals that ensure that access to justice principles are properly considered in the development of those policies. That's the law. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just the law. All right. (laughs) And the language in section 0.33 says shall. We've talked about the word shall quite a bit here. Shall furnish the taxes. Shall uh, give it over to the grand jury in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Shall in this particular case as well. The Office for Access to Justice shall be headed by a director appointed by the attorney general. And that director shall do those two things that you just mentioned. But Trump, Sessions, and Barr simply... Shant, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> we so need you an sh- opposite of a you know, shout. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Merrick Garland has yet one more cleanup to oversee. So the first thing the report says is that, you know, we'll be prepared to actually do what the law requires. Well, you know, good start. 
Um, next, the report indicates that the newly revitalized office will finalize top strategic planning priorities, right? And one of which is to convene at least three roundtables per year on concrete topics. And again, right, this is not a brown bag luncheon, right? Like this brings together 28 different high level individuals, right? The vice president, the cabinet, the head of every major executive agency not represented by cabinet level position, right? So the EPA, the EEOC, the Office of Management and Budget, the National Science Foundation, the Consumer Fraud Protection Bureau, the Social Security Administration, right? Uh, reading this entire list would would take the rest of the show. But yeah, the people making decisions at the very highest levels of the executive branch. Yeah, and sort of similar, Andrew, isn't it, to the to the memo he put out to say we're going to address gender equality in yep. everything that we do at every agency. Uh, and, and, you know, back in July, Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta and Deputy White House Counsel Danielle Conley convened the first meeting of the roundtable specifically mm-hmm. to address the impact of COVID-19 on access to justice from marginalized communities. That was followed up by a listening session on August 11th, 2021, that dug into specific issues like national housing and eviction disparities, as Mm. well as potential solutions to those. And now we have the 53-page report. Yeah, we do. And it is eye-opening, right? So it begins with statistics compiled by Legal Services Corporation. That's an executive branch agency that's chronically underfunded that the last guy wanted to get rid of, right, that provides critical civil legal grants and assistance to state legal aid services, right? And that, in turn, helps people in need get counsel for critical civil events, right? Because, you know, you have a Gideon versus Wainwright right to a public defender in a criminal proceeding, but lots of civil proceedings are really, really important to people. Things like child custody hearings, adoption proceedings, evictions, veterans and disability benefits, housing conditions, right? All of these areas where people interact with the law and they they may not be prepared for it and they almost certainly uh, don't have a lawyer to help them. Yeah, absolutely. And as it turns out, even before COVID, before the pandemic, the situation was dire. Uh, 86% of the civil legal problems reported by low-income Americans received inadequate or zero legal help. 86% and 71% yeah. of low income households had experienced at least one civil legal problem in the last year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not like, oh, well, there's like four people. No, <laughs> 71% in the last year. And, and note, too, that these numbers by definition can only include problems that are reported in the first place, which is estimated to be about 20% of all actual cases. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you put that together. And the system is running roughshod over low and moderate income Americans. Yeah. And and then COVID hit. Right? And then. So, yeah. I, right. So all of the problems, you know, were multiplied. I, uh, unemployment claims skyrocketed. Right. Like I could read you the percent, but it's like up thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of percent. Right. Um, that's another area, uh, civil area where poor people simply don't have access to a lawyer to help walk them through the process. And it can be a minefield, right? Evictions were up 200% before a nationwide moratorium. um, And requests were up 700% for help with the kinds of things that you're not supposed to do, but that happen anyway. Things like illegal lockouts, utility shutoffs, and foreclosures. If you don't know that your landlord can't break the lock, come in, (laughs) 
steal your stuff, change it and kick you out. Right. Like, I mean, that's that's part of the problem. here. So uh, you've got all of that uh, simmering together and then you have the courts. Right. So in both criminal and civil cases, the courts switched over to um, an almost entirely virtual system that I can tell you is still largely in place today, but it presents issues. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's great for social distancing, virtual court. I've been to virtual court this past year. Yep. 71% <laughs> of it uh, of us have had a <laughs> in the last year. But when you think about low-income people in our areas of the country without reliable internet, uh, people who don't own smartphones and or laptop computers, a system that seemed foreign and confusing and hostile to begin with, all of a sudden became exclusionary. So one of the first set of recommendations coming out of this roundtable is a list of best practices for all courts and federal agency adjudications, highlighting factors for executive agencies to use when deciding whether and how to conduct remote hearings, including a focus on whether those methods would adversely affect case outcomes or the representation of, of parties. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I found really interesting, the roundtable also made participants aware of best practices across various executive agencies. So, for example, did, did you know that AmeriCorps provided volunteers to courts and legal aid service providers during the pandemic to close the gap? I didn't know this. And I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm on these kinds of agencies. right? So it's safe to say that probably a lot of folks were in the dark about this until this roundtable took place, until the information got exchanged. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I didn't know about with with regards to domestic violence cases and, and restraining yeah. order cases until uh, that happened. And then I had people actually had to reach out to me and tell me, hey, you get this uh, uh, extra stuff or for, you know, therapy. There's assistance here. And I had no idea it existed. And additional programs that were shared in this particular roundtable included pilot programs to assess the impact of virtual hearings on tribal courts mm-hmm. and indigenous peoples. Uh, for uh, for hearings for those with disabilities, for virtual services for victims of crime, like I was just talking about, and the Office of Violence Against Against Women, also what I was just talking about. And Department of Justice announced that it created a centralized online civil rights reporting portal to process bias-related complaints, which have unfortunately skyrocketed during the pandemic. And the portal is multilingual. It accepts complaints in Spanish, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, and uh, Tagalog, the five most common languages spoken by the limited English proficient community. That portal was published out to civil rights and social service organizations. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> again, we we go from an administration that called this the Kung flu and the China flu. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not hard to draw kind of a direct line from that rhetoric to the bias-related complaints we're talking about, to now having to clean that up. So ultimately, the roundtable identified five key areas of pandemic-related policy issues. So one, eviction and foreclosure. Two, access to health care. Three, access to other government benefits. Four, consumer protection. And five, immigration. And and again, we could spend hours going through all of that. Um, I, I know it's sometimes easy to say, like, oh, you know, it's a roundtable. It's just a bunch of talk. It's not like actual legislation. But in this case, that that's not true, right? There are over 20 pages of real guidance, rules, grants, other programs that were announced by executive agencies in accordance with the findings in this roundtable, right? So that's things like Housing and Urban Development announcing an eviction protection grant program to support legal aid providers or uh, the DOJ writing guidance to all 50 states 
urging state courts to adopt eviction diversion strategies and to include legal assistance in those proceedings. And that diversion part means not evicting, right? Not kicking people out of their homes. Right. Especially in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, like you said, we could spend the rest of the show in this document. But to me, uh, it represents making good on a promise. One of the things you'll hear marginalized groups say is that they want their voices heard, that they want a seat at the table. This is literally a seat at the table. This is that process. And it it asked a question the previous administration would never have asked. And in fact, kind of asked the opposite right. uh, and invited minority voices to that literal table to share their experiences. They, that's what they did and help craft government policy. And like you said, not just legislation, policy. And this shouldn't take our efforts off of high profile, big ticket items that we still need to do and that we have to do legislation for. But it's an important reminder that there is a lot to the presidency that's below the water in a lot of ways in which we're still cleaning up on aisle 45. Well said. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Andrew, I'm, I'm just so I'm so happy about these things because, you know, like you pointed out, it, there's so much policy that can be changed. We had all of this student debt forgiveness that has gone on. None of that had to go through Congress. Uh, All the immigration policies that are changing in the Department of Homeland Security, none of that had to go through Congress. Um, We've only had lawsuits against a couple of things, a couple of Biden executive orders uh, and memos and stuff. And so there can be significant, uh, the bear's ears and, and grand staircase. I mean, there's so many things that simple policy can impact. And I think I, I think it's important. Yeah, no, I it, I I echo that 100%. And 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 look, we are recording this as always Monday night. So, you know, Tuesday is being <laughs> is something happening Tuesday? Yeah, flagged as a major test that is the governor's race in Virginia. Um we're obviously going to be um attuned to that uh and and you know, and um and and that's uh, that's a close race and we would be remiss to not point out uh that uh the progressives are are disappointed um that uh and and and, and that in many ways we we share that disappointment right like it, it i want this administration to be doing more the question is how do we get there right and and you really have two choices right you have the we can check out we can say oh they broke our promise to us uh you know the the reconciliation bill doesn't have uh, carbon tax in it doesn't have uh, enough to uh, uh, to combat climate change. That's true, by the way. It it, it doesn't right. I, it it should have more. Uh, you can either say uh, cynically we're going to drop out, or you can say, um, yeah, well, what what I'm going to do is double down uh, and try and elect some more Democratic senators in the midterm so that we don't have to cater to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Um, it's pretty obvious what side I'm on. <laughs> yeah, same Z's. And as Adam Schiff said in his new book, Midnight in Washington, we can't afford the luxury of despair. Uh, yeah. We're going to oh, be right back that. with. Uh, yeah, it's so good. And uh, some of these policy changes I was talking about, we cover them all all the time in Clean Up and All 45. And I got a couple of them for you Woo. coming up in the next block. We just have to take a quick break. Everybody stay with us. Long, long, it's big, it's heavy, it's wood. It's long, long, it's better than that, it's good. Everyone wants a long, young and a long. 
Frog from Blamo. Everybody, welcome back. We have a couple of cleanup stories for you. These are those policy changes, Andrew, the ones that matter. <laughs> Uh, not that legislation doesn't matter. It just takes takes a lot longer. <laughs> Listeners will recall when we covered the amazing new rules rolled out by the Department of Homeland Security protecting migrant workers and going after the employers instead. Yeah. Uh, and this week, we can add to that because U.S. immigration authorities will limit arrests now at schools, hospitals, and other what are called protected areas as part of a broader effort to roll back the approach, if you want to call it an approach, to enforcement under the former guy? Yeah. And look, this is big, right? Agents and officers are being directed to avoid making arrests or carrying out searches at a range of sensitive locations, quote, to the fullest extent possible, end of quote. Uh, and that's uh, I'm quoting directly from a memorandum from uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, outlining the new policy. Right. And as you mentioned, this is not I mean, you know, this is just the, the latest in a series of immigration policies under President Biden aimed at taking a uh, what you might call a more targeted approach to enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it is it abolish ICE. It is not abolish ICE. Uh, is it the the right direction from where the previous administration was going. Absolutely. Right. So policy is similar to one under President Obama that restricted arrests at churches and schools. Right. Churches and schools. But Biden is taking the Obama era policy further because the new policy includes not just schools, but medical and daycare facilities, playgrounds, Mm -hmm. recreation centers and demonstrations and rallies. Hello. Yeah. And just a a quick reminder about those previous policy changes. Guidelines issued earlier this year for immigration enforcement directed agents to focus on recent border crossers, on national security threats and people who have committed serious crimes. Right. Um, DHS also imposed limits on arrests at courthouses when people showed up for other matters and ended up uh, being, you know, swept up in these mass uh, worksite raids. Yeah, so that that whole thing in that last most recent policy with the worksite raids was was amazing because we had that one in Mississippi under the former guy that 690 something yeah. people. God. And and Mayorkas has argued that his agency doesn't have he, we just don't have the resources to pursue all of the estimated 11 million people in the country without legal status. It should focus on those who pose the greatest risk to society as it always has been. Uh, or should be, I should say. And in announcing the new policy guidelines, the secretary said agents and officers should consider broader societal interests and the impact of their activities on communities. I haven't heard that kind of language before. No. Um, So list of protected places in the latest policy change from Biden includes broad categories such as a place where children gather and a place where disaster or emergency response and relief is being provided. that's it is hard to imagine more expansive policy language than that. Right. Like I am sure the right wing is already, you know, mocking oh, a place where children get right. Um, that 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 makes it, it, it makes it possible to send a top down directive that really marks a significant shift for an agency that, uh, you know, includes, like I said, immigration and customs enforcement. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, other exceptions include when the action involves a national security threat, 
Um, this is exceptions to the to the rule yeah. to the broad uh, going into places. If there's a national security threat, uh, if there's an imminent risk of death, uh, violence, physical harm, etc., if it involves the hot pursuit is in quotes <laughs> of someone who poses a public safety threat and someone who was personally observed crossing the border without legal authorization. That's where exceptions to this new policy come into play. And 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 just to make that clear, so you can put that into context. That replicates the language from uh, exigent circumstances that uh, that don't require a search warrant, right? Especially the the good old. I love that like nineteen seventies phrase of hot pursuit, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Imagine Starsky and Hutch there, right? Yeah. But um, <laughs> in any event, uh, other narrow exceptions are if there's an imminent risk that evidence material to a criminal case would be destroyed uh, or if a safe alternative location does not exist. Um, Otherwise, agents or officers would have to get approval up the chain before taking an enforcement action, quote, in or near a protected area. Yeah. That Um, is so broad. Yeah. And and look, like, again, this is a matter of trying to strike the balance between a policy directive from the top down that says, hey, um, this is not the administration that is conducting secret no-knock raids and trying to round up illegal immigrants for the crime of being here in the United States. And I use that illegal immigrants in 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 scare quotes, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. That I don't endorse that language, right? Um, it it it, it marks a real change. What while you know while still kind of blocking out the arguments of like. Oh, so if I watch somebody skip across the border, I can't. Ar- All right, fine. Right. <laughs> fine. Yeah, if you physically see someone, sure. Um, and uh, this is pretty cool, Andrew. We have, I have another fixy uppy cleanup Ooh. thing, um, policy type situation. We should just call this segment like "Who Needs Congress Anyhow." Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, call, we call that, yeah, the, aka, the end of the American Republic. <laughs> <laughs> the last 12 years, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but uh, the Biden administration has now struck a deal with European Union officials to lift some tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, which is resolving uh, a, a long time thing. At, and he's doing this at the G20 summit that resolves this bitter trade standoff that began under the former guy three years ago. Uh, the deal allows limited volumes of steel and aluminum products from the EU to enter the United States tariff free. And for those worried, we aren't getting anything in return. Andrew? Yeah. In return, the European Union will drop their retaliatory tariffs on American goods. Funny how de-escalating from a trade war, like that's how that works, right? Hmm. So the EU had other, and and, and again, uh, you you could say sort of pulling back, whatever. Uh, Otherwise, the EU had been poised on December 1st to boost tariffs to 50% on various U.S. products, including Harley-Davidson motorcycles and Kentucky bourbon. So how do you think bourbon-drinking Harley Republicans will respond? Um, yeah, by uh, blaming Biden and <laughs> pretending that the whole thing was a secret plot of the globalist Illuminati. It, 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 it is staggering to me. And again, I'm just sidebar here for a second, but like how much Democrats remain committed to programs that will benefit people who will turn around and never vote for them. Yeah, it's it, just <laughs> astonishing to me. It reminds me of the old Pat Oswalt bit. He's like, imagine, you know, Obama could give every American a free sex robot 
and Republicans in the future would be like, man, my sex robot broke. Fuck that guy. Like, <laughs> How do we come back from that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. But maybe we could talk about... Uh, I mean, there's so much we have to unwind, right? It, it, there really is. It. This is an area where, regardless of your feelings on globalization and public policy and look that can be super complex right like i i tend towards a more free trade position i recognize uh that you have to temper that with environmental standards certainly with uh employment you know work stand right like you can't you can't have uh slave and near slave wages um like there there are it's a difficult and complex issue even if you lean towards sort of the more protectionist side, I think everyone agrees that what Donald Trump did uh, beginning in 2017 was was flat out incompetent in terms of uh, uh, pushing a trade war and, um, you know, trying to <laughs> especially trying to denigrate the Chinese economy, which, by the way, is up 20 percent. Uh, uh, as of 2021, um, our economy is still below 2019 standard. Our, our goal is to get back to 2019 standards. So, you know, uh, that, that backfired spectacularly in terms of international competitiveness. So in trying to unwind the mess that they were stuck in, Biden officials really have a difficult task in, in deciding how or, or even whether in some cases, uh, to, to undo, uh, those uh, duties on foreign imports, right? Where, where again, it may be, you know, part of a, a larger plan that that makes sense. Um, but <laughs> implementation-wise, we're panned by economists as raising prices for American consumers. Um, and and again, the flip side being kind of appealing to uh, labor groups uh, that uh, that have that more protection spent. Uh, that have that that remain, you know, a strong influence uh, in the Democratic Party. Um, and and the argument there is, um, you know, how do you balance that versus, um, you know, the, the lobbying from, you know, powerful industry groups? It, it, it's it's a tough balance. Yeah, it is. But we've been saying this whole time, you know, tariffs hurt American consumers. Yes. <laughs> uh, and administration officials say they expect the tariff agreement to help alleviate the current supply chain issues that are currently hampering manufacturing and distribution of key goods throughout the United States. And it will also help ensure that all steel entering the United States from Europe will be made entirely on the continent, according to the administration. And and I think that that's I mean, there's there's a couple of different reasons why. This is actually appealing to labor unions. There's more, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so again, uh, overlapping with an issue, uh, what again I think is the number one issue, right? Um, it calls for future negotiations to take carbon intensity levels in steel and aluminum into account in future trade talks, right? That would allow production of products that are significantly cleaner than the steel and aluminum that is produced in China, right? So a, a, a way of leveraging kind of the made in America uh, domestic production uh, to say, okay, well, one one reason to prefer that is we have we have more control over that in terms of uh, applying our green initiatives and leveraging those rather than just you know buying the cheapest goods that we can. So um, 
White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the tariff agreement removes, quote, one of the largest bilateral irritants in the U.S.-EU relationship. So that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I like that. And, um, you know, one of the only problems I had with this, and probably because of that line you said they have to walk when they're doing this stuff between labor unions and the American consumer prices, is how long this took to get done. It's November. It was about to expire on December 1st, or the tariffs were about to shoot up to 50% on bourbon and motorcycles. Uh, but but the administration has been reluctant to, to antagonize that steel industry you were talking about and other domestic producers protected by the tariffs, especially in electorally crucial steel states like Pennsylvania. And analysis by the Economic Policy Institute, which is a left-leaning think tank, found that tariffs created more than 3,000 steel jobs. Yes. But in terms of the political analysis, the United States Steelworkers Union released a statement on Saturday praising the agreement. Quote, we appreciate the Biden administration's continued recognition that the American steel industry is critical to our national and economic security. End of quote. That is Kevin Dempsey, president and CEO of the American Iron and Steel Institute. So uh, Biden uh, managed to walk that tightrope. He did. And I think by, you know, pulling the tariffs back, but also saying we guarantee it'll come from the continent of EU. We're going to put uh, cleaner, you know, s- uh, regulations on on some of this stuff and uh, et cetera. So they did some of the protections that are kind of assumed with tariffs were sort of left in place without hitting the American consumers in the pocketbook. So I think that that's that's the win win. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. And and again, it's an illustration of you know that the our the other side republicans right now are you know 60% insurrectionists and 40% flat earthers right like that that we we know what they believe in our side is complex right and uh, you know it, it i certainly would like to dictate that you know uh we just we just hook elizabeth warren up to some kind of you know eeg device and whatever her brain spits out becomes the law of the land like you know, but uh, really governing is kind of harder than that. So, yeah, uh, unfortunately, right? Yeah. <laughs> we can't just have the, the Warren machine. Oh, uh, I in. would live in that machine. Oh, I would clean too. that machine. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Uh, we have comings and goings next. Uh, we'll be right back. We just have to take this quick break. Stay with us. Hey, Biscuit, come here. Come here, Biscuit. Come here. Cats suck. Anyone who's ever lived with one knows what I'm talking about. So maybe it's time you got a little more out of your relationship with your feline counterpart, and maybe even make a few bucks while you're at it. With Glitter Litter Automatic Litter Factory, it's possible. The Glitter Litter Automatic Litter Factory spray coats the cat's business with glitter, then adds a coat of polyurethane. Next, a chain is attached, and voila, a super dope necklace to wear over my jerseys. Fire. Oh man, this chain is dope. How much you want for it? Like $200? Sure. Be right back. I gotta find an ATM quick. Glitter Litter Automatic Litter Factory can make charm bracelets, chokers, earrings, barrettes, just about any kind of jewelry you can think of. Just select the style and type of jewelry you want, and the next time Fluffy dumps a brownie, you'll own a remarkable piece of jewelry, like this sick ring I'm wearing. Create timeless pieces that look good on anyone. Denise, where did you get that brooch? It's stunning. Oh, this? A friend of mine dropped it off this morning. Can I buy it with a personal check? Sure. Cats are morons. Isn't it time you got a little payback in the relationship? 
Sounds like my cat and Glitter Litter Automatic Litter Factory are done making my new grill. This Christmas, put your cat to work with Glitter Litter Automatic Litter Factory. Yeah, and this is a very short comings and goings week. But um, first, I, I, I just I can't leave without talking about another roundtable, right? Um, October 26, 2021, that was Intersex Awareness Day. And that led to the release of a new resource from the Department of Education protecting the rights of intersex students. Yeah, yeah. Participants discussed multiple issues during this. So uh, October 26th, the meeting, uh, multiple issues related to intersex individuals, visibility, (laughs) non-consensual medical interventions, uh, surgeries performed on intersex children, and efforts to achieve equal protection under the law, particularly in the area area of health equity. So I get it. This is a, a, a big hello, not to a person, but to a topic that literally the previous administration thought didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> a real change. Um, and we also have a person. We are welcoming aboard Sarah Minkara, who is President Biden's appointment to be the U.S. Special Advisor on International Disability Rights. That's a senior level position at the State Department uh, and the person who is responsible for ensuring that U.S. diplomacy and foreign assistance promote and protect the human rights of persons with disabilities around the world. Biden's announcement recognized that this was particularly important in light of the disparate impact that COVID, climate change and political unrest have had on persons with disabilities. Yeah. And she's a rock star uh, from within the disabled communities. Sarah Mankara is an advocate, expert and facilitator in the fields of disability, inclusion, authentic leadership and social entrepreneurship. She's the founder and a board member of Empowerment Through Integration, ETI. That's a nonprofit organization she established while still an undergrad student. (laughs) And ETI's mission is to disrupt the narrative surrounding disability through both empowering youth with disabilities individually and accelerating authentic inclusion globally. And more than a decade later, ETI and the program Sarah Designed are still active in the Middle East and North Africa, MENA, M-E-N-A region, uh, providing social and life skills development for refugees and other children with disabilities. Amazing yeah. woman. It, 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 she's like 29. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. Right. So, again, uh, oddly enough, the Biden administration finding not hard at all to to locate women with outstanding academic credentials. So uh, Wellesley College, Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Uh, she's an advisor to academic government policy groups on issues related to disability, gender, interpersonal dynamics, inclusion, entrepreneurship. Um, she's spoken before the UN. Uh, she's a, a member of the Harvard Kennedy School's executive education program. Uh, she was part of Forbes 30 under 30. She's part of the Clinton <laughs> Global Initiative. <laughs> MIT's Ideas Global Challenge. Oh, I'm in uh, all this, though. This is whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm not. I, I, I feel the same way. Yes, you I'm are, also Alex. the body double for Pam Anderson. Is she that? <laughs> no. I, you know, it's 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 incredibly impressive. And again, it is putting your money where your mouth is in terms of bringing in folks who use language like 
quote, disrupt the narrative surrounding disability, right? Like that is, I could you imagine if you said that to the other guy, uh, you know, his, his head would go dark, like the, like the computer in the original episode of Star Trek, right? Like he would say, Error does not compute. <laughs> he would say, you're going to disrupt disabled people. I'm all for it. You want to disrupt them? Great. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, that's probably where he would go uh, with that. And something if, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, welcome aboard, Sarah. Honest, and I mean, she's also a hundred women using their power to empower. Uh, I, thing like everywhere. Yeah, she's it's everywhere. no, it's it, again. It, it just this is it, it is it is one of the the consistent things that we've talked about on the show uh, is uh, Biden carrying out his commitment to real diversity also increases. Uh, our uh, ability to 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 respond to problems, right? These are these are people who have been overlooked with as you know with more credentials than than anyone, um, and uh, and it's great seeing that being put into practice in the executive branch, in judicial nominees, right? Like this is this is a diverse administration. Yeah, blowing the notion that there just simply aren't enough qualified candidates in minority groups, just out of the water, just blowing yeah. it out of the water. Every time I see Jeffrey Tubin on CNN, I'm like, really? He's the only guy. He's the only guy you can get today. That's it. That's it. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Whatevs. Um I'm, I'm angry, Andrew. This has been really fun. I'm so happy that you're back and I'm back and we're back. Yeah. I, there's There's nothing like getting the band back together again so for reals we should do a box set absolutely (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i don't have anything else if you don't have anything else um i think we can uh, safely sign off if uh, if if that's okay with you uh it's i mean i could stay here forever but uh, i don't have any other stories so let's uh why don't we why don't we call it a day and uh and i'll see you next week yeah i could stay here forever too everybody until next time this has been clean up on aisle 45 Bye-bye. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America 
on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.